Thank you for all that you do for us. We pray, Father, you continue to bless us uh, tonight as we study your word. Thank those who are here. Pray, Lord, that you'll uh, continue to show us about our roots and to help us put it all together of where we come from. And we just love you. We look forward tonight now to uh, what you have for us. In Jesus' name, for sake we ask it. Amen. Now, uh, last time, last couple of times, we, uh, we talked about the seven great awakenings, and I kind of showed you how that works its way all the way through uh, American history. Uh, American history is very, very, very vital in uh, putting it all together where you're at in this country with what God is doing and all the things that go along with it. And so we now, uh, we come through the seven great awakenings, and then I showed you last time we talked about the seven counterfeits of the Great Awakening, the seven American kind of cults that the devil threw up to counter the uh, Reformation in America. And I showed you how that the Reformations, uh, or the, uh, the uh, excuse me, the uh, Awakenings start uh, with Whitfield back in the 1700s and then systematically come all the way up, the last one starting in about 1950. And then I showed you almost corresponding to that the seven heresies or the seven churches, the Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, all, of the, all of the areas that uh, the devil popped up to try to counter what God's Spirit was doing. We know now, we've been in church history for a, quite a long time, we know now that that's standard operational procedure for the devil. We know that the whole Bible as the history of man is built around God moving in a direction to do something and then the devil moving in a direction to countering what God is doing. So... That's not due to us. Tonight, we're going to enter into the final church period of church history. Uh, even though it's the final, uh, that certainly doesn't mean that we're anywhere close to being done. Uh, there's so much in here that it's taken six months probably to finish all this out of here if we do it right. And um, I want to have at least one hard copy here that we can put into a book form. All these lessons are being uh, put into an outline book form as we go week by week, and then we'll get it worked out and get it all looking and put it into a, some kind of uh, uh, manual that you'll be able to use. But uh, take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 3, and we want to talk about the Laodicean church period. Now, the Laodicean church period is the one that you and I are living in, where, very frankly, most of the other um, church periods run the span of a couple hundred years. Uh, the Laodicean church period runs about a, a um, you know about a hundred years up to this point. We don't know how long it's going to go before the rapture of the church. But if you look at our chart up here, you'll see the seventh period of church history that we talked about. We started with Ephesus, Ephesus, then we went to Smyrna, then Pergamus, then Thyatira, then Sardis, and then we talked about the greatest period of church history, which uh, you know, we took a lot of time with Philadelphia, showing you how that is the greatest period in church history. And then we saw Philadelphia come to a close, and now we're going to enter into the Laodicean church period. The Laodicean church period, I'd say, starts probably around 1880, somewhere in there, runs up to where we're at now, and will run up until the uh, rapture of the church. As you can see on our chart, the next event here is the rapture that's going to take place. We are at the very end, the very end of the Laodicean church period here. We're just right on the verge of it. All right, now let's read here in chapter 3, verse 14. It says this, 
And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert, wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see." As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in with him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath a spirit, uh, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, in this passage, there's a number of things we want to note here before we really dig into this. And uh, I probably have uh, spent more time on, on this one uh, than um, basically all the other ones because this is all relevant to us. This is our history here. What we're going to look at in the Laodicean church is, uh, you know, is where we are at. This isn't something like the Ephesus church period or the Smyrna or even the Pergamos that we, uh, we can study and we can look at the facts, but we don't have any real appreciation for because of three or four, five, six hundred years ago. The one we're studying now is us. It's where we are at. And uh, for me personally, it's a very, uh, it's a very uh, uh, interesting time uh, in history because it takes up half of my life. I was born in 1950. By 1950, the Laodicean church movement was well on the way. I actually got to live through the transition period, uh, which is one of the things that to this day I thank the Lord for in everything that I, um, in everything I do, that he actually allowed me to see it. Uh, I was part of it. I was in churches that uh, uh, from that point on in about 1970, which I really uh, began to see how the whole thing goes. And I watched the different generations of preacher come along, knew most of them, heard all of them preach. And uh, therefore, I, I'm in a pretty good position to give you an assessment of it, uh, probably better than I am in any other period of church history because I just wasn't in the other places. But I was in this one. And uh, I'm going to, so my perspective on it will be unique from the aspect of somebody who's been there, done that, as the saying goes. Now, a couple of things you want to look at here is the fact that the first thing is the name Laodicea. The word Laodicea means rights of the people or justice for the people. Basically, when we get into this thing, you'll see it, but we're talking about the, uh, just the kind of the outward thing of it tonight. I don't know how far we'll get into it, uh, but it's all very important and it all really helps you put the whole thing into some kind of perspective for you. The Laodicea church means justice of the people, rights of the people. It is, a, it is a church that is concerned more about people's rights than God's rights. This is the great time when the church becomes a socialized institution. This is the time where you're going to see the churches uh, uh, get away from uh, everything that God wants it to be and start it to become everything that man wants it to be. And we'll watch the process. We'll actually see that process happen. 
And we live in a world that is concerned with all kinds of rights. We have civil rights. We have human rights. We have, uh, you know, gay rights. We have uh, everybody wants their rights. And, of course, the bottom line is that in the world that we live in, nobody cares about God's rights. And this is the hallmark of this church. The next thing it says down through here is it says in verse 15, I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot. And uh, the thing there is that uh, this is the worst state for a church to be in. And this is typical of just about every Baptist church that you're going to find today. When I was growing up, and I was in the late 60s and the early 70s when I went back to church and got plugged into the Lord. The standard teaching about this was, is the fact that because all the Baptist churches were, were pretty much fundamental and still had the book. The standard interpretation and the standard teaching of this uh, was the fact that this Laodicean church, the church that was lukewarm, was really the churches that came out of the Reformation. And that would be uh, the Methodist church, uh, the uh, Lutheran church, the Presbyterian church. For the most part, many of those churches were very on fire and very soul winning uh, when they come out of the Roman Catholic Church during the Reformation. And for uh, a while, they really uh, believed and preached the Bible, uh, you know, and, and won people to Christ. And then they began to uh, lose their fervor, and they began to, in time, go back. And by the time the 1900s came around, and by the time my generation came around in 1950, and I was just a young man in 1968 and 1970, uh, we all thought that the, uh, uh, the lukewarm churches were uh, those churches. Because by that time, they had all went back into the Roman Catholic Church, for the most part. They certainly were all dead in America, anyhow. And uh, so we thought at that point, you know, given the limited time where we were, uh, and this was back in, the, like I said, the late 60s and the early 70s, we just assumed that, that uh, and we taught that that was those churches. Little did we know that by the time the 80s and the 90s, and now here we are in 2010, that uh, those churches, the lukewarm church, uh, was not those churches, the lukewarm churches were the fundamental Baptist churches that once believed the Bible and uh, were on fire for God, but now are not. And the church here is, is, is the worst state that uh, a church can be in. It's the worst state a Christian can be in because the Bible says that they're, it's lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. What does that mean? It means that the church is not in apostasy. They still believe maybe... The salvation is by the grace and the blood of Christ. They're not in apostasy. They haven't turned their back uh, on the God. They still believe that Jesus Christ is God. They believe the so-called fundamentals of the faith that are always talked about. Uh, they still meet on Sunday. They, they do, you know, they preach the Bible uh, and all of those things. But uh, they're not in apostasy, but they're not hot either. In other words, they're not, uh, they're not an aggressive church. Uh, the early church there, as you're, we saw in Ephesus, was commended for their intolerance. He talked about that early church being uh, commended because they found, they tried those who said they were apostles and found them to be liars. It was a hard-nosed church. It was a church that stayed very true to the, to the fundamental doctrines of the Bible. And, of course, the Laodicean church is hallmark that it is neither one. They still win people to Christ, but 
they turn out spiritual babies. There's no doctrine in the churches. Uh, no, and you'll see it as we come through here, and you'll see why. Uh, they're pretty much uh, not in apostasy, but they're not on fire either. You go to the typical Baptist church uh, in this town, or any town really, and you will find, uh, you know, a nice sermon that really doesn't step on anybody's toes. Uh, you'll find, uh, you go to the bigger the churches, the less preaching there will be, and the more it will shift the teaching. And uh, you'll find that when you get to the point where uh, you've got to uh, uh, bring in millions and millions of dollars to pay for your building. Uh, somebody told me uh, last night or the other day when they were over to see me that uh, there's a church in town here that... Uh, uh, they uh, sent them a thing that, uh, that they want to raise uh, $70 million in uh, 70 months. Seven, $7 million in 70 months. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, you figure do the math on it. That's, uh, and that's an adjacent to their regular offerings that they've got to have to run everything. And that's basically because they're in a situation where, you know, they, they have got themselves up to their eyebrows in debt, and, uh, and it's a situation where the church... Um, today, you know, it thinks that bigger is better. The more bigger buildings, the more beautiful buildings, the more God is with it. And that's another characteristic of the church as we come on down through here. Uh, Look at verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You hear me say it all the time, and I, and I preach about it and inject it into my messages all the time, about the three P's of ministry. And that is, of course, perspective. You've got to have your perspective. You've got to have a purpose in what you do. That would be the second one. And you've got to have passion for what you do. Well, the church of Laodicea has lost all three of those. And they're driven by, uh, by, their, by, the, by being rich and increased with goods. Uh, they simply want to have the biggest and the best. And I know that there's a side of Christianity that none of you ever see, but uh, me being in it for, for 30, 40 years, I've seen it very well. And that is the actual aspect of churches today, Baptist churches, uh, envying what the other churches have and trying to build uh, their churches uh, better than the other guys' churches. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's exactly what uh, the Laodicea is all about. It's about who's got the grandest building, who's got the, big, who's got the nicest doghouse. And, uh, you know, they think that uh, when you put all of the endemies uh, of the world into the church, that that's what's going to bring people in. And unfortunately, that's what brings people in because, you know, the only thing sorrier than the pastor than the churches are the people that go there. And that's what they want. They don't want to be preached to. They want to be entertained. They want to have everything the world has, but they want to have it within a church structure so they can feel good about it. And that's what the Laodicean church does. It's big, it's rich, it's increased with good. And I love the verse that says, and have need of nothing. And that would be a reference to the God's Holy Spirit or God himself. In fact, as you go on down through this chapter and you look at this, it it simply, it says this. It says, uh, uh, because thou sayest, I am a rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And of course, the church looking at itself one way, but, seeing, but not seeing itself as it really is. Now, that's a problem with a lot of God's people. And of course, you probably see the parallel that the Laodicean church, which does not see itself the way it really is, but sees itself in its own glory, 
produces Laodicean Christians. What's a Laodicean Christian? Well, it's a byproduct of the Laodicean church, someone who sees themselves as a great spiritual thing, but in reality uh, uh, are poor, blind, naked, and miserable. And I love those words because in my mind, in dealing with the ministry and dealing with people, there is nothing more that sums up New Testament Christianity uh, of God's people being miserable, uh, being poor, that would be spiritually, blind, that would be spiritually, and the word naked. And the word naked there uh, has to do, obviously, with the reference to First, uh, Second Corinthians chapter 5, of being naked at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, the great evening out process and the great awakening that's going to come that'll be the last awakening and be the greatest awakening will be the awakening that God's people get, you know, at the uh, judgment seat of Christ when the veil is pulled off of all this phony stuff that goes on and uh, the great churches who uh, portray themselves to be rich and powerful and, and all of the things that God wants and cannot see themselves because they lost their perspective and their purpose and their passion a long time ago as revealed as uh, poor, blind, and naked. And then it says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and when, in white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And now you can mark that shame of thy nakedness and that little word appear there, direct reference to the judgment seat of Christ. Romans chapter 14 says, we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And of course, that's exactly what it's talking about, the shame of thy nakedness. And that'll be 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, and uh, Romans chapter 14. And of course, that's exactly what I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in a fire. The gold will always represent the deity of Christ, and uh, that's God, and uh, tried in a fire. And of course, the church today uh, does not want to pay a price for anything, as God's people do not want to pay a price for anything. And they live their lives, uh, they want to live their Christian lives without any kind of controversy, without any kind of problems. Uh, they don't want any kind of uh, any kind of confrontation, you know. We just uh, we just uh, there's the old you know Rodney King Church. Can't we just all get along, you know? And and uh, of course that just doesn't work in in New Testament Christianity. And the church has always been the center of controversy, the true church, and always will be. So as you come down through here, it says uh, the next thing. He says, uh, "I counsel thee by me gold trod in a fire that thou mayest be rich." And white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Then this church is totally, completely blind as far as spiritually. It cannot see itself. I have a series of messages that I have preached over the years. And one of the, uh, one of the great illustrations that I use is... Uh, is a book that probably most of you read in high school or at some point, uh, which is simply called The Emperor's New Clothes. And if you ever read the book about the emperor's new clothes, it's a story about the king who everybody convinced him that the garments that he had on was the most beautiful garments in all the world. And, um, and uh, yet he was naked as a jaybird and uh, walking around and everybody was afraid to tell the king uh, his real true condition. And so everybody just talked about how beautiful his clothes was. And, and he was so conceited and so arrogant that he actually thought 
that, uh, that they were telling him the truth. And the thing that you Christians always do today to other Christians is, and pastors do this too, for the most part, is they tell their people what they want to hear. And they'll tell you that you're okay when you're not, because uh, when you got to make seven, let's face it, when you got to get raised seven million dollars in 70 months, you can't afford to lose anybody. And uh, as the old uh, uh, Right Stuff movie says, no bucks, no bucks Rogers. And uh, you've got to keep the money churning in, so uh, that obviously affects your preaching. You're going to think twice about who you tackle and what you say when you know people aren't doing what's right if uh, uh, you've got to have their money every week to, uh, to keep the lights on. When you get into that position, you're, you're definitely in trouble. And that's the position that most churches are in. And that's why, you know, that story about the emperor's new clothes. Who was it that told the emperor he was naked? It was some little kid. It was some little innocent kid that didn't see one thing or the other. All he saw was a naked king. And uh, he shot his mouth off. And it will always be people just like that who, uh, who will always tell the people uh, that you're really not what you appear to be. And, uh, of course, we all like to put on the spiritual facade of spiritual clothes but, uh, and most pastors keep that alive. That's the mark of the Laodicean church. But the mark of the Philadelphian church was stripping everybody down and uh, laying it out. Now, let me show you something here, and I'll just throw this in. Come over to, come over to Jeremiah chapter 1. Now, this is a good philosophy for ministry here in the, any time, but certainly... It needs in the Laodicean church, and it's certainly the philosophy I follow. And I was taught this many, many, many years ago. And was vic- fell victim to it many, many times. Now look at Jeremiah chapter 1 and uh, verse 7. Now this is a great, a great passage that deals with uh, Jeremiah going before the people. And you've heard me say many, many times that the prophets had a rough job. And their job consisted of taking God's side against a whole nation of people who didn't want God's side. And I've laid out the parallel so many times that uh, we'll not do it again tonight between the nation of Israel and their apostasy and the Laodicean church and its apostasy. But in Jeremiah chapter 1, this is a picture of God raising up a, a, a prophet. And as a pastor, in any age, but certainly in the Laodicean uh, church, the, this is his job. And uh, he says, verse 7, But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child. See that thing? That's, a, that's, a, that's who told the king he was naked, wasn't it? In that little book with a little child. And uh, he said in verse 6, uh, God told him what he wanted to do, to be a prophet, to go to the, all the nations. And he said, Our Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. See, that's what God wants. He wants a child. Child has childlike faith. Child's innocent. Child hasn't figured out how to be dishonest yet. A uh, child is just, uh, you see what you get. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs that a child is known, uh, a child is known by his doings. You know why that is? Because he hasn't learned to cover it up yet like you and I have. Well, like you have, anyhow. And uh, certainly not me. 
But verse 7, yeah, right. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I send thee, and whithersoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee, deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. Now that's a great thing for anybody that God calls to preach. And that's the way you got to look at it. Uh, keep from being afraid. A lot of guys get up and they get preaching, they get afraid because they look at the people out there and they see the faces and it, it, they get fearful of it. And I've never had that problem. From the first message I preached, I preached between 600 people and I just never bothered me one way or the other. But here's what he says. And this is, this is the ministry and this is what a pastor needs to do today, but he won't do it because uh, he's got to get the bucks in. And it starts out in verse 10. See this day I have set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms, all right, to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, and then, see, after you get all that done, to build and to plant. And if you're going to build people today, then you got to root some things out. Now, every one of these things uh, has, a, has a New Testament connotation to them, and I'll give them to you. And this is a great sermon, by the way. Uh, on the job of pastor. The first one is to root out. In Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse, uh, uh, I think it's 15, that would be bitterness. And he talks about the root of bitterness. And uh, through your preaching, you, you root that out of people. Uh, Hebrews 12, 15, I think is what it is. It's Hebrews 12, I think it's verse 15. Is that it? Yeah, 15. I got 75 in here. I know that ain't right. <laughs> So I just subtract the little thing across the top, make it one. The second one is pull down. That'll be 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, where it talks about the pulling down of strongholds. See? And then the third thing is to destroy. How many tell me what that is? Raise your hand. Anybody want to got that one down? Hang on, John's got it. Anybody else got it? William's got it. Who else has got it? Anybody? Let's go with William here, see if he knows what he's talking about. Huh? Well, give me both. What is it? What is it? What is that? What does it mean when it says to destroy? What is that? What'd you say? Joshua what? Yeah. And what's in Joshua 7.12, John? The idol. The idol, which is called what? The accursed thing. Yeah, aching in the accursed thing, see? So you got to destroy the idols in your life and take those things out. Oh, this thing will preach. This thing will preach. In fact, you'll hear it in the old throwback messages coming down the line your way someplace. It'll, we'll give them to you. All right, now, uh, and, then the, uh, and then it's a throwdown. And uh, that's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, where it says to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. And then when you get those four things done, then you can do some work. Then you plant, and then you build. Now, most pastors today will never touch those first four things. They can't, because the mark of the latency in church, as I said, no bucks, no Buck Rogers, and they're not going to go there. They're not going to make people mad that people leave. They're not going to preach the truth because people, you know, they're not going to rock the boat. That's the, that's the bumper sticker on the latency in Christian cars. Don't rock the boat. Keep everything status quo. Don't cause any problems. 
Don't take any hard stands on anything. And of course, that, that just simply will not work. Won't work here anyhow. My philosophy is, you know what? We try to do the best thing we can do and preach the Bible as best we can. But I'm not under any illusion, never have been, never will be, that this church is for everybody. And my philosophy is, hey, you know what? You find a better place to go where you can really serve God and be what God wants you to be. Fly off, little birdie. Fly off. I'm all for you, man. Get there and get her done, boy. Doesn't matter to me. You get where you need to be happy. Everybody has a right to be happy. And uh, you need to, if you're not happy here, you need to find a place you're happy. I'm all for it, man. Praise the Lord. Pass the ammunition. Thank the Lord for not a going fishing. I'm with you. But uh, that's, the, that's the deal here, see? He has to tear down, and that ain't going to happen. That ain't going to happen. So he says, uh, as many as I love, verse 19, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous, therefore, and repent. And then verse 20, and this is a great verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. Now, the contrast here that you see is uh, that uh, in the last church we looked at in Philadelphia, it was called the Church of the Open Door. And they found the key of David. Remember that? And the key of David that God openeth and no man shutteth. And uh, because they had the key that opened it. So it's been called through time and eternity down through the annals of the church as the church of the open door. In other words, the door was wide open. Doors in your Bible, doors in your Bible always always represent opportunities. You want to remember that. So it's a picture in a Philadelphian church, eh? the door was wide open and it was unlimited opportunities. And boy, we saw that, didn't we? Well, now here we are in this church and it's very obviously that the door's closed. Not only is the door closed, my goodness. Now, this is the only place in your Bible where a door is a literal door. In most other places, there's a typology to it or a figurative to it, but not here. This is the only place in the Bible that I know of that a door has no typology to it. The door here is the door of the New Testament local church. And in this particular case in Laodicea, the door is shut. And look who's on the outside of his own church knocking on the door to get back in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's safe to say that the Lord Jesus Christ is locked out of the Laodicean church for the most part because uh, they're too busy doing all the big spiritual things and uh, have lost their perception, lost their perspective, lost their passion, lost their purpose. And now they are, they are caught up into a situation that is absolutely, completely uh, a farce. And they can't even figure it out. Notice the last part of that verse, if any man hear my voice, voice, voice. Well, the only way God speaks today is through his word. So there you go, got a church that's got God kicked out of the church because his Bible's kicked out. And the Bible says if you hear God's voice, that he'll open up to you and uh, you can sup. Now, that's our word for supper. And uh, that means that you're going to dine with him and you're going to fellowship with him and you're going to sup with him. And of course, notice that hearing the voice and opening the door is on your shoulders, not his. You have to open the door. And the only way you open the door is to hear his voice. And the only way you hear his voice is to hear his word. Now, as we come through this in the next couple of weeks or whatever, months, however it works out, um, you'll see how all this thing plays in, and I hope you remember our little dissertation here because uh, it's a situation where uh, it really will, you'll see how it all comes to position. 
As I told you earlier, there's nothing in my life that I understand better than the Laodicean church period. I grew up in it. I see it from a perspective that very few people see it from. And, um, you know, and it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, to me, it's been a great thing. And uh, verse 21 says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. And then he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, the reason why you know this is the last church, and up on our chart here, you can see the rapture basically ends this church period, and we move into the tribulation. The book of Revelation follows the same concept. We have seven churches in the first three chapters here. And then look what happens in chapter 4. Now, up to this time, uh, you'll find that in the first three chapters, the church, the word church is found 19 times in these three chapters. Predominantly in chapter 2 and chapter 3. 19 times you find the word church. You ought to go through and mark them in your Bible, either in yellow or underline them in red so they stand out. 19 times. And then in chapter 4, here's what you got. And after this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard, was that were a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now there you have, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, you have the rapture, see? A voice like a trumpet, that'd be 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15, the word come up hither, and immediately, like in the twinkling of an eye. So you've got uh, the first three chapters here, predominantly chapter 3 and chapter 4. You have the church mentioned 19 times, laid out in seven periods of church history. In chapter 4, a door opens in heaven, a voice says, come up hither, likened to a trumpet, and immediately, twinkling of an eye, somebody is taken out. And then, of course, you won't find the word church anymore in the book of Revelation, anywhere at all, until you get to the last chapter where he's just closing it out and he's saying goodbye to everybody. But the church is gone now. It's raptured. And this shows you, this shows you where this thing kind of comes into perspective. So the latency in church period starts around, I'd say, 1850, maybe the beginning of it, and begins to work through that. And... Uh, and then comes from there. Now, I'm going to give you some background to the Laodicean church. This is very, very important. Uh, you'll never get what I'm about to give you anywhere on this planet. In any church you go to. I guarantee you, you won't. I'm just promising you that. But uh, I want to give you some background to the Laodicean church. I think it's absolutely imperative that you understand this. Now, there's a lot of things that we'll talk about in the next couple of months or so, but the truth of the matter is there's four major areas that I want you to look at tonight and then put them in a proper context that took place within Christianity to bring about the Laodicean church period and to end the Philadelphian church age. You have got to see this. You will, you will, your whole time here will be, uh, I won't say it will be worthless, but you will not get the whole perspective until you see what I'm about to lay out for you tonight and you understand it. And the four major areas that I want you to get in the right context. Now, the first thing that happened, the first thing that happened was the replacing of the King James Bible. 
Now, we're going to go through manuscript evidence when we get a little farther into this, but we don't have to worry about that tonight. But let me just explain what took place. Along about uh, 14, in the 1400s, they were cleaning out some uh, areas of the Vatican, and somebody was building something or whatever and knocked a hole in the wall and suddenly found a, a room that had been sealed up hundreds of years before. Nobody even remembered where it was there. And, of course, the Vatican is honeycombed. The Vatican has been reworked about a million times in all of the years since, you know, 400 A.D. So there's all kinds of hidden places in it. Well, they found this secret room or this room that had been walled up. And within it, they found uh, uh, manuscripts that dated back to the uh, third of the fourth century. And because they found these manuscripts, they knew immediately that that no other manuscripts anywhere on the planet were this old. And of course, uh, because they were found in the Vatican, they were labeled as Vaticanus manuscripts because they were found in the Vatican. I might add to that that no one has ever seen them originally and held them in their hands. The Roman Catholic Church is very secretive. One of the best uh, movies that really displays this is... uh, Oh, the movie uh, Devils and Angels. You ever see that? When a guy wants to get in the Vatican uh, library and they won't let him in, and finally he gets in. That's, that's exactly what it's like. It's a great underground vault that has been built under the Vatican. I mean, we think of the Vatican library like that over there, you know. No, no, no. It's sealed with security. The Vatican guards uh, are armed with machine guns and uh, everything else that keep people out. Uh, it's uh, very few people, if anybody, gets in there. And the Vaticanus manuscripts have never been seen by anyone, which is, poses a problem unto itself. The only thing that anybody's ever seen is photographs of it. And they have photographed it and make that available, uh, but nobody has ever seen the original documents, which, again, poses a, a problem. I mean, it really does knowing the Roman Catholic Church the way we do. So in about 1420 or whatever it was, they found these manuscripts that go back to uh, around 400 A.D. All of the people that uh, have found these manuscripts, uh, they were locked up in the Vatican, and uh, they became the known as Vaticanus. Then around uh, 1850, around 1850 over in the Sinai Peninsula, Sinai being over there in the Middle East, around Mount Sinai, uh, a German archaeologist by the name of Tischendorf. Uh, he was, he was uh, fooling around out there uh, in an old Roman Catholic monastery called St. Catherine. Now, St. Catherine's Monastery uh, is a very uh, a hard thing to get to. First of all, it's located up in Mount Sinai. You have to, they don't have any elevators back there when he was there. I don't know what it is now. They had to lower a basket and they had to pull you up because there's no way, no, no way to get up into it. And he had got in there to the, to the monastery. And uh, he, uh, one day he observed one of the monks uh, trying to start a fire because it was wintertime and it's very cold in the Sinai. Um, you can get a Sinai infection really easy if you're not careful. And uh, he... Uh, he saw this monk uh, lighting a fire with what he observed to be uh, leather-bound leaves of something writing on it. And so he goes over there, and he about has a heart attack because uh, 
he recognizes immediately that what this monk is doing is starting a fire with manuscripts that that no one has probably ever seen before. And uh, these manuscripts uh, uh, date also to about 400 A.D. And they are the counterparts to uh, what was found in the Vatican in the 1400s. And because they're found in the, in the Sinai Peninsula in St. Catherine's Monastery, by the way, St. Catherine's Monastery was the monastery the Roman Catholic Church built uh, at the very spot where Moses talked to the burning bush, or I should say the burning bush talked to Moses. In fact, they still have the bush. So, uh, you know, now as far as I was concerned, forget the manuscripts, grab the bush, man, that's what I'd have done. I mean, uh, but and anyway... So he immediately sees that and recognizes what he has and, and what, he's, what he's got there. And, of course, uh, uh, through a process, uh, they do not, he goes to Cairo, and he wants to get the grand uh, cardinal or whoever's over the area to release those manuscripts to him. Uh, they won't do that. They, uh, they, they want to keep them. He tries to get them every which way he can, and they won't give them to him. Finally, after the course of a couple of years, uh, he comes up with a plan that, the, uh, uh, that he ought to give them as a gift to the Tsar of Russia. Uh, and of course, they don't want to do that. Finally, he hits on a better plan, and it is that, can I just borrow them? And then, of course, they reluctantly let him borrow them, from which, obviously, they, they never get returned. And today, they're in the British Museum, and uh, they are called Sinaiticus because they're found in the Sinai Peninsula in St. Catherine's Monastery. And uh, what happens after that is this, and this is very, very, very important, and this is just the, this is just the cliff notes. We'll get into this uh, a little bit later on. The devil's always at work, and the devil knew exactly what he was doing. And he knew that the way to stop the Philadelphian church age and to put the brakes on it uh, was to take the word of God from the people because it was the word of God that opened up the door. I mean, he tells you in Revelation chapter 3, you've got to be a lunatic not to see it, that the blessing to this church was because they kept his word. And uh, so he's going to take that word out of their hand. So what happens is this. Around, 18, uh, around 1870 and 1880, these manuscripts fall into the hands of, of two guys that uh, are uh, their Bible uh, language experts. And uh, their name basically is Westcott and Hort. And Westcott and Hort are two Greek scholars. One of them worked for Cambridge and the other one worked for Oxford. I can't remember which did which. But anyway, they're connected with Oxford and Cambridge. Got to remember now, Oxford and Cambridge by this time is pretty well shot. They're, uh, they're both connected with the Roman Catholic Church. They're both Mary worshipers. And uh, they're both uh, connected very strongly to the Roman Catholic Church. Well, they take, they take these manuscripts, about 1860, somewhere in there, and for the next 30 years, they take these Greek manuscripts, which come from Sidiatus and Vaticanus, and they develop in about 30 years' time uh, a Greek New Testament. And this Greek New Testament now becomes a complete nether Greek Testament that they have that comes from Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. By the way, when the scholars examine Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, 
they came to the conclusion, even though that one was found in the 1400s and one was found in the middle of the 1800s, and they were found thousands of miles apart, uh, they both found that they both were written by the same hand. And it's obvious to anybody at this point that the, um, if you remember our early part in church history, going way back now, that, uh, that Eusebius under Constantine had ordered 30 copies of the New Testament. And it's pretty, pretty well, uh, and they still have that letter uh, preserved in the British Museum. And it actually lays out the kind of uh, vellum it's supposed to be on, vellum being leather, uh, and the dimensions of it. And uh, these are the exact same dimensions and the exact same description. And everybody pretty much understands that uh, that what you had in the Vatican found in the 1400s and in Sydney Atticus in, in the 1800s was basically copies of the 30 new te- copies of the New Testament that, that uh, Eusebius got from uh, Alexandria, Egypt, uh, from origin, uh, that became the official Roman Catholic Bible. They just got lost over the years. But at this particular point, scholarship has risen to a new height. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Scholarship has risen to a new height. These guys then begin to take these manuscripts, and for the next 30 years, they go underground, and they come out on the other end, about 1880, with a new Greek New Testament. The world, is, the world has come to the point now, Christian world, much like we think bigger is better, the bigger the church, the more godly it is. They take the position that the older the manuscripts are, the more godly they are. Now, this is their reasoning for that. They think that, you see, for your King James Bible, and this is a half-truth, but for your King James Bible, it's hard to find a complete Greek text that probably goes back by, by 1200. And it's not exactly true, but that's what they say, and there's a, it's a half-truth. You can find a lot earlier than that. But let's say that's true, that the Greek New Testament that the King James Bible comes from cannot be found uh, past written in 1200. Well, here you have one that was written in 400, 400 years after Christ died versus 1200 years after Christ died. The reasoning is the older ones must be closer to the originals. Therefore, they must be better. And obviously, we've already talked about how that when Origen corrupted the New Testament text that became City as of Atticanus, they had what, 67,000 changes between it in the two? So what happens is they look at those 60-some thousand changes and they look at Sinias Vaticanus as being the right one because it's closer, so its changes must be the good one versus the King James Bible doesn't have all, doesn't, it's not changed in those 68,000 places. So because it's the older, it's got to be the bad one, see? That's why, just for point of reference, in your Bible in 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, all the new Bibles take out that verse. You know Why? Because city and Vaticanus don't have the verse in it, and the King James Bible does. Their reasoning is because city and Vaticanus was written in 400 A.D., closer to the originals. Therefore, when it doesn't have it in, it probably shouldn't be in. They don't stop and think about the two lines in the Bible the way I taught you, that city and Vaticanus is a corrupt line through the Roman Catholic Church. God wouldn't spit on it. I don't know if God spits, but he wouldn't spit on it. And, of course, the true text is the text that has it in, which comes up through the Waldensians and all that stuff we've studied already. So this is the problem you get into. The world was a gasp 
that West Cotton Hort had come up now and, and basically uh, produced this new Greek New Testament. And that was about 1880. In 1888, the first English translation in almost 300 years rolls off the press to replace the King James Bible. And it is the RSV of 1881. For 300 and some odd years, the King James Bible had ruled the world. And now the devil, getting ready to bring about the destruction of the Philadelphian church age and bring in the Laodicean church age, the first thing he had to do, the first thing he had to do was get rid of the Bible. And he's done that now because scholarship has uh, reinvented itself, raised itself from the dead, so to speak. And now that these guys have come up with the new Greek New Testament, which is closer to the quote-unquote originals, everybody on planet Earth buys into it. And uh, it comes out about 1881. In 1888... In America, the Southern Baptist Convention, which was the largest contingency of Baptists in America, you had three major Baptist groups. You had the, uh, you had the Northern Baptist. You had the, what was called the GRB, General Asso- Regular Association of Baptists. And uh, you had the, uh, uh, the Southern Baptist. There were no fundamental Baptist churches back then. We'll show you how that comes into being as we come through that. But the Southern Baptist Convention is without a doubt the largest Baptist contingency in America. In 1888, at their uh, convention in Sarasota, Florida, uh, they officially dropped the King James Bible from their churches and officially adopted the RSV uh, as their new Bible. And so the whole concept is now complete, and uh, everybody else followed suit with it. The devil was not satisfied with that. The RSV of 1881 shed off a flurry of, of revisions and retranslations that go on to this day. The next one came in 1901 with the uh, uh, ASV, and then, of course, the RSV is re-again, done again in 1950s, someplace in there. And then we have a, the new ASV that comes out in, in my day, about the 1970s. And about the 80s, we had the new NIV come out, which is prominent today. And then, of course, uh, um, everything in between, uh, you know, all of the, uh, the muckety-mucks would be living letters, uh, good news for modern man, the Phillips translation. You go into a Bible bookstore today and you will find... Uh, a Bible for everybody. I mean, it's unbelievable. The last time I was in there, they had a Bible for black people. Um, you talk, tell me about it. I don't know. I, you know. They had one for kids. They had one for senior citizens. They had one for, uh, you know what, just about everything and everybody. Of course, it's all about money now. And uh, we, 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 the, the, the publishers are well aware how stupid God's people are and how gullible they are. So they, they hit them, and they hit them hard. But that is the first thing that the devil had to do. He had to get rid of the Bible, and he did. And when we start coming through the latest in church period, uh, once we get this foundation thing laid down, uh, we will see how that uh, 
it all basically uh, stems right from here. Once this happened, once this happened, uh, as my own grandmother used to say, everything else goes to hell in a handbag. And uh, it's a thing where it just, it just spirals from this point on. And uh, it's a thing that uh, it, it doesn't get any better. And it becomes a, it becomes a real mess here. Now, uh, and it, it, it continues on to this day. And this is why we got the problems we've got. And this is why uh, the church is in a situation that it's in. Now, the next thing that happens, and once that takes place, then it's just a matter of time before uh, things start to fall apart. And, the, and that happens about, about in, the, in the latter part of the 1800s. Now, around 1900, another movement gets underfoot, and you've heard me talk about this before, but you need to understand this movement. And, uh, and this is called uh, what we call the uh, neo-evangelical movement. Now, neo means new. Evangelical has to do with the word evangelism. And this is basically a new evangelism movement is what it, it, what it is supposed to be. And it starts in the late 1800s, right about the time that all this is happening. What the devil's doing, he's pulling a lot of things together, see. And it starts in the 1800s and moves up through the 1900s. And its whole goal, its whole goal is built under a term that they use, that they really build it on uh, and sell it on. And that is a reconstruction of theology. Now, let me translate that for you. They want to bring Christianity back to an accredited way of thought. In other words, up to this point, the key to the Philadelphian church age was the common man having a common Bible and the scholar didn't have anything to say about it. They were pretty much out of the picture. But now this is a thing where they're going to reconstruct theology in America for basically popular consumption. And it's a shift from the it's a shift from hard Bible doctrine to salvation as the number one doctrine. And this is what they this is what they try to get to. Now, you're going to find this a lot today in just about everything that you hear. When the Bible went Obviously, man lost everything. He lost his ability to discern. He lost his ability to define. And things got redefined. I always liken it to like sneaking into Walmart tonight after it closes and spending all night long changing all the price tags because everything is run by a barcode. So you just take one barcode off and put it on another. Think of the confusion in the morning. A lady comes through with a, with a you know, a, bag of fresh salad and she pays $943 for it when the person comes in with a big screen TV and pays gets two for five dollars I mean that's you know the confusion would would just and that's what happened they changed the value system of just about everything and that was the most damaging thing that can happen now obviously that's why this church takes the hard line stand that it does on the things that we do and don't make an apology for it some people like it, some people don't like it. Some people like it for a while, and then they don't like it anymore. You know what? I don't know what to tell you. 
you know, it's just the way that it has to be. And uh, the concept of, of the neo-evangelical was to get away from Bible doctrine and make the number one doctrine of the Bible man's salvation. And of course, that's not the number one doctrine of the Bible. And you hear it all the time, you know, that the theme of the Bible is crucifixion. The theme of the Bible is the love of God. The theme of the Bible is the souls of men. The theme of the Bible. And, uh, you know, you hear guys get up and preach. Boy, if I had a dollar for every time I heard them preach, we could build a new building. How do get up and they say, now, heart, God's heartbeat is the souls of men. And God's heartbeat is missions. And you go to a missions conference, and God's heartbeat is missions. You go to a soul-winning conference, God's heartbeat is the souls of men. Uh, wherever you go, you hear it. Truth of the matter is... God's heartbeat is none of those things. The heart of God is truth, plain and simple. If you don't start with truth, you don't have anything. You wouldn't even know that you had a need and that you were a sinner without God giving you a book that was the truth that told you what it was. If you don't have the truth, you don't have anything. So they get rid of the truth so then they can make it whatever they want to make because the goal of evangelicals, is to become a non-denominational organization. Denominations are based on what different churches believe, doctrine. And they want to get away from a denomination. And they want to, and the way that you do that, and the way you get away from denominations and get away from doctrine is put something in there as your main theme that everybody can agree on. And who can't agree in most churches on winning people to Christ? You see, that's the mark of the latency in church. You're neither cold nor you're hot. Remember that? You're lukewarm. You're not in apostasy. You still win people to Christ, but you're not hot. You don't stand for anything. And, of course, that's the, that started with the, with the evangelical movement. The next thing is it moves on for a while down the line in my time period, and we've seen this in the last... Uh, in the last 30 or 40 years, where, you know, we've now seen, what, five or six generations, maybe seven or eight generations of preachers come out now since this, uh, the turn of the century. And what we find is the evangelical movement is enjoying great success. And, of course, anybody knows Rick Warner from uh, Saddleback out in California who wrote the book, The Purpose Driven Life. Um, you know what? He's got a church of probably 10,000. Uh, Joe Olstein, as goofy as he is, he's a neo-evangelical. And you look at his church and he's got a, you know, a football stadium filled with people. Uh, we look at all the great evangelicals out there who have become very popular and very successful. And you know why they do? Because they don't preach anything. They all, people go there and all they hear is how good you are. You know, it started with, uh, you know, it started with the Crystal Cathedral with uh, Schuler out there, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, and telling everybody how, you know, positive thinking and how positive they were. And it just moved on from there. What happened is, and what happens is this, and this is what you're seeing today. Because people see and think that big churches are the hand of God, and that's success in the ministry, Baptist churches then begin to drop the Baptist off their name. And you'll find a, a lot of churches in Kansas City uh, are Baptist in some of their doctrines, or at least started out Baptist churches, 
but then dropped the Baptist off their name. And the reason why they did that is because they saw the great, and you got to know these things, man. What you're getting tonight is absolutely worth a million dollars. They absolutely see the thing as that because Baptists uh, have an attitude about doctrine, and Baptist doctrine, if you stick with it, is going to tick a lot of people off. You're not going to be able to build a big church preaching Baptist doctrine. Now, I, I'm, I'm the first one to tell you, and you know me, 99% of the Baptist churches in this planet could be wiped off with a bulldozer tomorrow, and I'd be just happy as can do about it. I mean, I think that's a good move. Uh, but fundamentally, Baptist churches down through history are the ones who brought the line through. They go back to the Anabaptists. They go back to the, you know, the Waldensians. I, we studied all of that. The first Baptist church in America in Providence, Rhode Island, was by John Clark, a Baptist, but he was a Waldensian in his, in his, in his history. So guys today drop the Baptist off their name because they, they want to reach people. And they think that the way to do that is non-denominational. And so they fall into this trap. It's just an easy trap to fall into. So you find churches being called, you know, being called uh, oh, everything in the world except Baptist. I mean, the ones around here in Kansas City would be Jerry Johnson's church over there, which is uh, First Family, see? Well, Jerry Johnson started out as a Baptist. I knew Jerry Johnson when he was still a little street evangelist over for Youth for Christ. And Jerry Johnson is a showman of the first quality. He's a con man. You say you shouldn't talk like that. No, I'll talk like that because I've known the kid since he was 18 years old. Let me tell you how he worked it. He started out with Youth for Christ, and he's a good preacher. He learned a few tricks of the trade, and he was a good preacher. And then he went to the situation where he got, when she used Youth for Christ for all that he could use them for, then he dumped them, and he went to the fundamentalist movement. And so he started hitting all the big churches. Everybody, every church, every church in this city wanted Jerry Johnson to be a member of their church. I was at the Kansas City Baptist Temple M, and Truman Dollar was a pastor. Truman Dollar was salivating at his lips that Jerry Johnson would consider uh, being part of his church. When Truman Dollar moved to Temple Baptist Church in Detroit. You know what he did? First thing he did was call Jerry. Now, Jerry lives in Kansas. First thing he wanted Jerry to do was to transfer his membership to, to, to Temple Baptist Church in Detroit and be a member of his church, even though he lived 800 miles away. You know why? Because to have Jerry Johnson as a member of your church was to have a, the Hope Diamond in your basement. Jerry Johnson would go to churches and he would, he would pill out that uh, he would fill the place out with people and uh, uh, he would boast that he would bring 600 converts into your church. I know. I, I grew up in it. In fact, one time, I, you know, uh, we, he came to our church back at Kansas, Kansas City Baptist Temple and he preached one night and he talked about how that he just came from Akron Baptist Temple and they had 600 people saved. So I called Akron Baptist Temple the next day, being the investigative sleuth that I am. And I asked the lady, I said, uh, I hear that Jerry Johnson was there last week, and did you really have 600 people saved? Oh, yes, we had a great revival. 600 people were saved throughout the week. And I said, and he was there like Monday to, to Saturday, because he was with us on Sunday. And he says, yes, he, he, we finished out Friday night. And I said, wow, that's wonderful. So I said, there were 600 people saved from Monday to Friday in your service. And she says, absolutely, it was the most phenomenal thing. And I said, let me ask you a question. How many did you baptize Sunday? 
You know how many they baptized Sunday? Well, you could put them in a small Volkswagen with all your kids in the back seat. Now, you know what? I look at something like that, and, but that's the lady to see in church. See? All we wanted to do was brag about how many we had. Once he worked the Baptist crowd, fundamentalist crowd, and he used all those people up, then he went to the Southern Baptist. And boy, did the, did the crap hit the fan when Jerry Johnson left the fundamental circle to went for the Southern Baptist. I don't know if you know it or not, but the fundamentalist Baptists hate the Southern Baptists, and the Southern Baptists hate the fundamental Baptists. And if you're a fundamental Baptist, you'd never have a Southern Baptist preacher preaching. I don't care what he believes. He may be the greatest soul winner, but because he's a Southern Baptist, you never have him. And the Southern Baptist will never have the fundamental Baptist. You see, it's just a, it's a civil war. It's, what it, it's always been that way. And both people don't know that, but that's just the way that it is. So when Jerry Johnson left, the, left the, the, the fundamentalist crowd to go to the Southern Baptist crowd, oh, my goodness. Boy, you'd have thought God died and became a Methodist. I mean, it was absolutely like uh, Constantine died. I mean, it was one of the biggest fervors that ever hit the fan, boy. I mean, it was something else. Oh, he was just, he was just clobbered up one side and down the other. But then he went down and he was the fair-haired boy of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he toted them. And he preached for them. Jerry Johnson had a deal where when he came to your town, he wouldn't hold a revival in your church unless you could guarantee him 5,000 people to come to that preach service. You know why that is? And I've heard him say this. You know why he said that was? Because he thought his preaching and his time was too valuable to spend on anybody less than a crowd of 5,000. Now, that's pretty arrogant. Seeing how that I can remember in the book of Acts chapter 8 when there's a revival going on in Samaria where the whole country's getting saved and God pulled out the evangelists to send him one Ethiopian eunuch on the backside of the desert. See, that's the difference between believing the Bible and just getting up and saying you believe it. And he worked the Southern Baptist Convention for a while. And then he pulled the greatest trick in the world. After he pulled out millions of dollars out of the fundamental Baptist and millions of dollars out of the Southern Baptist, then he started his own church and became a pastor. Took Baptist off the name of his church. <laughs> you know what? I love it. I love it. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. All the crooks aren't in jail, folks, I guarantee you. But that's how it works, man. That's how it works. And the neo-evangelical crowd, boy, that's exactly what they do. And uh, you got them, uh, the Church of the Resurrection, even though it's a, a Lutheran church in its context, it's a, it's a non-denominational. They all are. And even Baptist churches that, that don't have enough guts, they can't take their... I guarantee you, every Southern Baptist church, big church, I guarantee you, First Baptist of Raytown would die to take Southern Baptist off of their name and come up with some catchy name to reach more people, but they can't. You know why? Because they got too many old folks in there that wouldn't stand for it. They'd do it in a heartbeat. They'd do it in a heartbeat. They all would, but they can't all get away with it. So you know what they do? They keep the name, but they just take and they do the same kind of programs. That's what they all do. I, I've been in this business for 40 years, man. You ain't, I ain't, this ain't my first rodeo. I know exactly how they handle it. I know exactly what to do with it. So these churches, you're going to find them. When you see them driving down the road, just make, a, make an impression on you. They're, you'll find the Christian church. They're non-denominational. They're evangelical. Bible churches, see? Sometimes they're called community churches. Sometimes they're called the village church, where the village people go. 
Sometimes they're called free evangelical. And when you get in there, there ain't nothing free. Sometimes they're called Grace Church, Harvest Church, First Family Church, Outreach Centers, Community Family Chapel, say, uh, Christ Church. I mean, they all got their names on it, uh, but they all take off and they're all no denomination connected to it in nature. I mean, that's the way they work. And basically, they have no roots through anything in New Testament history. They're a product of the neo-evangelical movement that comes out after they dump the Bible. And that's why when you go there, they believe absolutely nothing. Not a thing. And the main thing that they all wanted to shift the emphasis to, winning people to Christ, they've even lost that concept. And after they do get saved, they don't do anything with them. Now that's the second thing that came in. The third thing around the uh, same period of time was what we call neo-orthodoxy. And neo being being new. Now orthodox is a word that means sound in the Christian faith. So we're an orthodox. When you talk about an orthodox Jew, you're talking about a hard-nosed, hard-line Jew. An orthodox Christian is someone who's supposed to hold the line uh, of the Christian faith according to the doctrine of the Bible. Ah, but this is neo, new orthodoxy. And this starts coming in around 1900 and works its way up into the 1930s. And it gets its roots from about 1880 up to 1910 from the religious uh, liberals. This will be the Protestant and the moderns. And uh, basically, in a nutshell, their philosophy is to change the Bible and the church and the message to keep up with the changing society. See, that's what they do. There have women pastors. Uh, there's no sin, there's no hell, there's no devil, there's no, there's no soul. It's all a social gospel. God's everybody's father. Uh, it's a mixture of Freudian psychology and watered-down Bible. And uh, a good example of that would be our own representative to Congress, Emmanuel Cleaver. Uh, he's a neo-orthodoxy. And uh, they're worthless. And basically, uh, whatever society wants, that's what they chained the Bible to. You see, one catered to the saved people and destroyed them. The other one took the unsaved people and made them even worse. And in both cases, it destroyed everything. Now, your neo-Orthodox would be Methodist, Lutheran, and Presbyterian, and, of course, uh, all of those Protestant churches. Now, I got to say that even within that, uh, just to be honest and fair and balanced here, you're going to find uh, some old Wesley Methodist church that's still pretty fundamental. And you even find some Lutheran churches that are basically fundamental. But they're few and far between. The majority of them are, are just as worldly and, and lost and, and have absolutely no care about anything. There is no truth whatsoever. Everything is just okay. And there is no sin. You're okay, I'm okay. And of course, this is the, uh, you know, this is where Schuler comes in. And you know, the tragic thing about Robert Schuler is that his, his, uh, his granddaddy was a hellfire damnation Methodist preacher who would tear the paint off your hide and the wall in 15 minutes in a sermon. 
And it's a, it's a, it, it just goes to show you how it goes from one generation to two generations later. And so neo-orthodoxy is the, is, the, is the third thing that happens. And this will be, as I said, your Lutheran, your Anglican, your Methodist, your Presbyterian, your Episcopalian, your Greek Orthodox, your Russian Orthodox, and, uh, and all the other basic you know, places that you have. Now, just so you, you, uh, you, you get a context here, going back to the neo-evangelism. Neo Here's some of the neo-evangelism preachers today that you hear. Just so you, you, know, you don't have to write them down, just so you, you hear them. John MacArthur, big on the radio, neo-evangelical. Billy Graham. Billy Graham is a classic example. Here's a man who started out being a fire-breathing dragon and a Baptist and wound up being a nothing. And, uh, you know, that's where it's at. And uh, it's how it works. Uh, Dr. Dobson, uh, Rick Warren, uh, Warren Wiersbe, uh, Bob Jones University, Hal Lindsey, uh, right down the road here, Calvary, Calvary Bible College, downtown Midwest Bible College, uh, Josh McDowell, Tim LaHaye, Jerry Johnson, Robert Schuler, Chuck Swindoll, Joe Olstein. They're all, and a million other guys, just about everybody here on Christian radio today is a neo-evangelical. You know why? Because if you're a Baptist and get on there and preach hellfire and brimstone, they'll kick you off so fast you won't know what hits you. You know why? Because your doctrine, and doctrine divides. You know what it was that they had a problem with when Jesus showed up? They had a problem with his doctrine. You know why? Because his doctrine kicked the hell out of everybody and divided people. See? That's what it's supposed to do. But oh no. Ain't going to happen. Now, the, the next thing that brought it all into thing, that put the bullet in the back of the head, was the charismatic movement. And where the, where the neo-evangelicals finished off the, uh, the, the, the mamsy-pamsy Baptist, and the neo-orthodoxy got all the liberals... The charismatic movement gobbled up everybody that was left. And of course, the charismatic movement starts in 1900 out in Los Angeles with a woman, Amy McPherson, moves into Topeka, Kansas about 1910, moves up through the 30s and the 40s into the full gospel businessman association. And we'll look at it when we get into it next time. We'll get into the, the whole meat of it. I'll show you how the whole thing lays itself out. But there's the four things. Now, all of these are direct results of one movement. And you need to know this. And we're going to go into this when we get into it. But I've got to give you, the, give you the, the ammunition here before we start to get in it. All four of these things come about because of one movement. And that is the Counter-Reformation. The Counter-Reformation was the Roman Catholic Church enacting some things to bring about a counter to the Reformation under Martin Luther. And it starts out slow. We'll talk about it. I'm going to go through it in great detail for you. Uh, but this is, you need to understand how this thing works. All of these affect the 20th and the 21st century Baptist churches. Their leaders, very powerful, very prominent. They're big mega churches, lots of power. But as we say in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus Christ standing at the door knocking, trying to get in. All leads itself to the false idea that the bigger you are, the more godly you are. Uh, in 1994, just to show you how this thing all came together, in 1994, the Catholic uh, 
uh, and a, an evangelical accord was, was put together. What is that? The Catholic and the evangelical accord is neo-evangelicals and Catholics getting together to come together in a partnership to win people in the third millennium. And it was put together in 1994 in Vatican in Rome. The ones who signed it for the Protestant side of it or the evangelical side of it were Charles Colson, who wrote the book, you know, who was, uh, went to prison but wrote the book then and became a Christian. Pat Robertson, he's from the uh, 700 Club. Uh, Bill Bright, another uh, evangelical. J.I. Parker, another one. Billy Graham was there. And they all signed it. On October, uh, one, uh, on October 1st through the 7th in 1980, Pope John II visited the United States. Billy Graham was asked to write an article for the Saturday Evening Post. Now keep in mind, Billy Graham started out a fire-breathing Baptist preaching hellfire and damnation and then winds up at the end of his life denying there's a hell, denying that Muhammad and Islam is good, are going to go to heaven just like everybody else is. And it all happened because of the fact that he made the transition from being a Baptist to a non-denominational neo-evangelical, and then he winds up where he's at. This is what he wrote in the Saturday Evening Post. Uh, he said, Pope John had emerged as the greatest spiritual leader of the modern world. He says, Pope John uh, the second was probably also the greatest spiritual leader in the 20th century. And uh, he was a great motivator and a great spiritual leader. And uh, he called him, in his article, a bridge between man and God. Ah. I, I, I must have just read this someplace, but I thought there was no mediator between man other than Christ Jesus. But obviously that's not true anymore. Now this is what all happened. This is just a prelude. This is just a, a basic sampling. You have got to learn what I gave you tonight. Get it in your brain. We're going to go through it and dig it out and lay it out and, and, and sketch it out for you in the next couple of months. But you got to start with this. You got to see this as it really is. You got to see this as it really, 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 really portrays itself. This is why we are in the mess that we are in. When the Roman Catholic Church began to counter that Reformation, it was something that the reverberations of that worked all the way over to the United States. It followed our pilgrim fathers, and the devil reclaimed what he lost. And, in a, and it took him about 300 years to do it. But finally, because man is so stupid and so egotistical, he forgot the roots where he came from. He forgot the Bible and the God that gave it to him. And then he got himself puffed up with education and scholarship. Oh, wait do you see it. Wait till you see it this next week. I'm going to walk you through the generations of my life of preachers that I knew, that I have preached with, that I have talked to, that I have rubbed shoulders with and since my, my tenure in, in the 19, late 60s and the 70s, before you were even born. The greatest thing God ever gave me was that gave me that education. Now, let me tell you here, and we're going to be done. Let me give you a verse here, and I want to close with this, because this is the problem. This is the problem. 
Haggai chapter 2. And there's no way that I'm going to offset this in any of my ministry. I'm not even trying to. And it's impossible. But I want you to know I understand it. Haggai chapter 2. All right, look at Haggai chapter 2. Now, here's the problem. And this is why I feel sorry for all of you. I wish there was something I could do to change it, but I'm I doing the best I can, but I know it won't work for most of you. This is, my, this is my, I feel terrible about this for every young man going into the ministry, but what can I do? I'm only one guy. But here's the problem. This was Israel's problem, and this is our problem. Or it's your problem. It ain't my problem, but it's your problem. Verse 3. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? You know what he's saying? This is where they finally get the temple built. And the temple had been destroyed now for almost 80 some years. It had been almost 300 years, maybe 400 years since Solomon built the temple. And what he's saying is, here we are building this temple, and we're all excited about it, and we're having a great time, and we're having a great time, but the bottom line is nobody here remembers the glory of the first temple, and this one is absolutely nothing compared to the real one. They had no comparison. They had no comparison of what God did at the first temple, and so they're thinking that this second temple is a great thing. Why, my friend, at the first temple, they offered 600 bullock, 600,000 bullock, 400,000 sheep. I mean, it was hundreds of thousands of sacrifices made at that temple. When this temple is made, two chickens and a duck. That's all they got. They got absolutely nothing. They've lost everything because they have no comparison of what it was when the glory of God was in Israel to what it is now in the destitute situation they're in. And the local church today is the same way. We have no comparison to what it was in the heyday of the great Philadelphian church. We have no idea the power of God. We have no idea what was done. It's hard to us conceive about a world, three quarters of a world, being one to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's hard for us to even comprehend. So guys come up, they have no roots. We're now five or six generations out where they have no knowledge of where this all came from. They can't get what you got tonight. And so they grow up in this amalgamated mess of the Laodicean church and they actually think this is the way God intended it to be. Oh, boy. The preachers are going to pay a price at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's all I can tell you. Well, that's the mess we're in. We'll hold up there. That's the great introduction to the Laodicean church. Doesn't get any better than that. In the weeks to come, we will sift our way through it. We'll deal with every piece of it. We'll look at it and put it together and and get a good understanding, and we'll build on what we already had tonight. So I hope it helps you. But you've got to learn. You've got to learn what happened. You've got to get it down. You've got to see it, not so much to be able to go out and tell everybody about it, but for your own self to understand why this situation that we're in is in such a mess. We're in. And also to help you understand why we've got to take the stand that we take. 
We don't have an option. We, at least I don't. You got one, go someplace else. But I don't have an option. You know what? I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and I'm going to be up against every one of those guys. And uh, I made a lot of mistakes in life, but I'll tell you one, that ain't one I'm going to make. We've got to hold the line, and the line's got to be strong, and it's just the way it is. And it doesn't matter if we ever get to be 200, 300, 400, 500, or you all leave and we go down to 10. doesn't matter to me. Uh, the truth is still the truth, and we've got to do it. All right.